So we're back with our fifth episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast, the first infrastructure podcast to shine a light on what we love to call uh, utility strategy. Uh, as we all know, buried utilities pose an enormous risk to any infrastructure projects, often causing schedule overruns, unexpected costs, and uh, of course, utility strikes. Uh, but with the right utility strategy, we're able to mitigate that risk and streamline our project, and that's what our podcast is all about, uh, sharing and gaining all kinds of insights that will enable just that, uh, helping project managers, utility coordinators, estimators, mappers, planners, designers, engineers, and any other stakeholders overcome the challenges of uh, buried utilities in our right-of-way. Uh, to help us do just that, we have here with us today uh, Gary Hoffman, uh, who's going to talk to us about smart grids, undergrounding, and everything in between. Uh, so a bit about Gary. Gary, with all his 30-plus years of experience in electrical, water, and gas utility design, is a senior client relations manager at Burns & McDonald's uh, at their transmission and distribution group. Uh, since joining Burns & McDonald, uh, Gary has served as a project manager of a $600 million transmission infrastructure program and has used his experience to create the company's uh, grid modernization program. Uh, outside of the company, Gary is involved in countless industry-related organizations, helping to bring order to this uh, chaotic but amazing industry that we are a part of. Uh, so Gary, how are, how are you doing today? I'm great, David. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, uh, give it, give us a little background of, uh, what's happening now in the industry. Everyone's uh, talking about PER, uh, what's happening here. Tell us a bit about it. Well, clearly, um, climate change and other factors, um, including customer expectations and um, financing capabilities uh, have put us in a situation, at least here in the, in the US, where uh, we would like to uh, retire traditional generation assets, coal, gas, uh, and, and honestly, the fleet was getting old anyway. And so as part of the new strategy for generation, for providing power to consumers. Um, we're looking to uh, newer, renewable type of, of sources of energy uh, to, solve a, to solve a lot of problems, not just the aging problem, like I said, but, but perhaps some climate change problems as well. And so solar, rooftop solar, utility scale solar, wind, same thing, uh, utility scale wind, um, hydrogen, other types of, of uh, generation resources are really driving this, what I would call a once in a lifetime change in our industry um, towards these renewables. And Gary, sorry, just, just for the uh, layman, uh, could you just uh, go over the acronym DER? Because not everyone is uh, a cool part of our industry. Too. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that is a great point. Uh, DER, uh, distributed energy resources, um, the word distributed coming from the fact that traditionally you had one big power plant and now we're looking at replacing that one large facility with distributed facilities, rooftop solar, local battery storage, energy efficiency in a school district or neighborhood. Uh, 
And so that's where the word distributed comes from. Uh, so you end up with distributed energy resources. It does include some unique types of uh, energy strategies, such as demand response, for example. Demand response is when you, um, when energy consumption is high on a very hot day, let's say, and, and we're having trouble meeting all the load, um, we can all turn off our air conditioning or we can not do uh, the laundry uh, to reduce the consumption uh, during specific time periods to reduce the overall peak demand. And so the, the, the ability of distributed energy resources, the, one of the good things about it is it gets it very close to where the load is, right? If you have load at your house, you're you know, charging your EV, let's say you're, you're into all that, you know, or turning on the lights when everybody comes home cooking dinner, well, it's nice to have had maybe solar on your rooftop that day and a little battery in your garage, you know, to provide you the power. You're not dependent on some power plant that's maybe a thousand miles away or 500 miles away or, or someone else. So, You know, Gary, I've, I've actually been looking at uh, one of the examples you, you gave hydrogen, which is really funny. I, a friend of mine just bought a hydrogen vehicle and he was showing me a map of where he could actually fill it up. And it was California and Vancouver, so or in BC and Vancouver. So just two cities or just two areas where he could use this car. I think he showed me one hydrogen station in Texas. So I just found it uh, very, very interesting that it's very localized. Do you, do you find that uh, the, the sector of DER is also very localized into certain areas? Or is it something that's really catching right across the U.S. right now? No, I, I do believe that um, electrification of the trans transportation fleet. So whether that's your personal vehicle fear or that's, you know, let's say a fleet of school buses or um, a fleet of forklifts in an Amazon warehouse, right? I do believe that, um, that we're getting very unique cases on the electric vehicle side. And, and we've actually seen a, in the United States, a large commitment from car developers to transition their manufacturing facilities to electric vehicles. And so that begs the question, uh, how are we going to charge these vehicles in the, at least in the, in the near future? I, I think it's a simple problem if we had uh, lots of time, 20 or 30 years to solve it. But we honestly, we don't have that time. We've got three to five to seven years to solve those types of problems. And so we're seeing some really unique um, uh, re uh, regulation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We're also seeing uh, technology companies uh, step up to the forefront uh, with their charging strategies. And then you, you if you take a, a vehicle like uh, like the one, like Tesla, the Tesla uh, charging uh, algorithm, uh, when you when you get into your Tesla in the morning, it'll tell you all the different places where you can charge your vehicle that day. And so those types of uh, assistance uh, will be great in the future. Uh, hydrogen is a bit of a unique case. It is out there several years before we figure hydrogen out. Although I do remember, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a hydrogen car when he was governor of California, and he did have his own personal charging station at uh, at LAX. Uh, was that his hydrogen Hummer? No, I think that was a standard diesel Hummer which he had. But <laughs> yeah, right. But but I, but I do believe as we figure out hydrogen, you know, it'll follow a similar technology path that um, the, the charging, the, the recharging will become available fairly, fairly frequently. Um, I just did fly into Columbus, Ohio, and they've transitioned uh, the rental car uh, 
uh, buses and all the shuttles serving the airport to to electric vehicles. Wow. And I'll tell you, it's it's a nice smooth ride. And uh, of course, Columbus uh, was designated as one of America's smart cities a few years ago. And so, um, yeah, I, I thought I was very impressed. You couldn't hear anything running. It was nice and quiet. So the air pollution, you know, the the noise pollution was down. Uh, obviously, the emissions was down. So it was a it was a, a great experience, actually. So, how do you see yourself, in, especially at Burnt McDonald's? You, you, McDonald's, you guys really have a a a large focus on renewables, correct? Just in terms of your uh, business and what you're doing. We we do uh, we have. Um, and, and we do it from several angles, uh, Ophir. One is on the utility side. Our utility clients are expected to kind of provide some of this infrastructure. So that's, I'll call that the supply side. So we work with our utility clients on the supply side. We have a very robust um, EV electric vehicle um, design team that works with our electric clients. On the demand side, we also have um, a robust business going and it's just growing and growing it's similar to cybersecurity, right? You just, there's really no end in sight. There's if, if, I, if I was a kid in high school and I was thinking about what kind of college degree would I want, you know, I'd be going for, you know, uh, electric infrastructure or, you know, cybersecurity, those things are going to be around for a long time. So what, but, not um, civil engineering. <laughs> uh, no, that's my first <laughs> Yeah, so civil engineering is a valuable, you know, it it's a valuable tool, right? We we could not um, we could not do any of our businesses without our civil engineering team. So I, so I had no no intention on disparaging you know, <laughs> our civil friends out there from the American Association of Civil Engineers. Gary, so I have a lot American of American Society, of, yeah, ASC, American Society of Civil yeah. Engineers. Gary, <laughs> talk to us a bit, yeah. a bit about what's happening in the, the regular, regulatory uh, standpoint of uh, DER. What, what's, uh, what's happening there? What's new? Well, on the regulatory side, um, it varies. Okay, so if we take the in the U.S. at the national level, so transmission, for example, is regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC. It's a, it's a government entity. And they've done quite a few things to facilitate, I'm going to say facilitate um, DER adoption. And really, that's, that's the most important role of regulators is to make sure that the markets help, help the markets work and facilitate the decision making of, um, of decision makers, right? And so uh, FERC recently, for example, issued Rule uh, 2222. Uh, which allows a DER penetration. It allows for DER all the way down to 10 megawatts at the distribution system to bid back into uh, the transmission marketplace uh, so that they could get fair prices for their resources, right? And it doesn't allow the utilities, um, at least all utilities, to exclude that DER participation. So, so the most important thing the regulators are doing lately is to facilitate the marketplace to stimulate um, market entry, to reduce the barriers to market entry. You don't have to have a billion dollars to invest now to build a power plant. You can build a 10 megawatt or a 50 megawatt power plant for a few million bucks and participate in the DR marketplace. I think that's going to drive innovation. It's going to stimulate, um, 
that that section of the economy as entrepreneurs, capital investors, other types of folks all come together to figure out how can they how can they uh, best create the market. And then when it comes to actually regulating that market, I think um, that's a little bit further down the road as we get more and more participants and it gets a little more complicated, then then we'll see more market rules. Uh, at the state level, the, the electrical distribution systems in the United States are all managed at the state level. And, every, and the states are, are very diverse, right? What they're doing in Hawaii, California, Massachusetts is not what they're doing in Florida, Georgia, uh, Texas, right? Uh, uh, very different. And so one of the challenges in, in our business is making sure that our regional offices understand the regulations and that their clients are exposed to in Colorado, in Arizona, you know, in New York, right? And that's one of the roles I help play here is I help, uh, I help our engineers and our project managers uh, understand what type of uh, business stresses their clients are under. It does create opportunities. Um, um, most investor-owned utilities, of course, are monopolies. About half the distribution load in the United States is served by large investor-owned utilities that are, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. The other half of the load is served by municipalities and co-ops. And so it depends really where the load center is. So it, it could be a small city that's running their own electric grid, and maybe they want their school buses in their city to be electric. And so... They pass legislation locally to do that, or it may be, you know, a larger state uh, like Ohio that decides that we're going to incentivize our utilities and in investing in, in DER and other smart city uh, type things. Uh, and we're going to let them recover the cost of that in their rates. So to customers. Gary, with all this, uh, with the different regulations right through and through, and the, uh, the, the the true difference, what do you think the difference would be on the actual grid if we start in the, doing all these D and these uh, these small installations? Do we think that there's going to be a lot more construction? Uh, it's going to be a temporary thing. It's going to be a, a permanent thing. Like, do we really see this as that next step in terms of uh, energy, uh, our energy use and uh, the way we're actually accustomed to, uh, to, to, to doing the standard builds? So the, the current design of the system at the transmission level, with the exception of transmission location and corridors, um, you know, you could do a lot. It's a very diverse uh, system. Power can flow both directions. You can, um, you can attach to it at many different locations to provide generation. Uh, the so we're the all the rebuilds of the current transmission system are based upon. Well, we had a transmission line that ran out to Wyoming for a coal plant. Now we need to relocate that transmission line 100 miles south in Wyoming to where the wind farm is. So at the transmission level, I think we're in pretty good shape. There, there are discussions, uh, technical discussions about power flow and reliability and resiliency. Uh, which we'll get to later. Um, on the distribution system, it's a much more complicated problem. The distribution system was built least cost, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, right? Yeah. And um, a lot of the a lot of the distribution lines are lateral, meaning that they go out to wherever the load is. The one, one line goes out to the little farm town, 
and serves that farm town, you know, and there's not redundancy or resiliency. And uh, if you put DER, if you put battery storage or uh, uh, solar on all the roofs in that little farm town, it's not really well positioned to feed that power back to someplace else. And so two-way power flow, um, the capacity of the lines, voltage constraints, there's a lot of technical factors that we need to consider when we're um, allowing this, these, this DER to attach to the system. I'm going to ask you, uh, sorry, I'm going to ask you a, a, a really interesting, yeah. I'm going to ask you a really interesting question tied into this actually. So with the current electrical system, uh, I know that there's a lot of operators, you know, with mergers and acquisitions and, and large purchases and mergers and demergers and so on and so forth, that a lot of operators don't actually have a handle of their actual assets. By actually bringing in DER, would that make it easier to control the assets in terms of what we have, in terms of where it is, or is that just adding on to the pile of uh, different items, which we, we don't, you know, just adding on to the pile of information that we require to manage? Well, it, do, it does create a situation, um, I'll fear, where uh, in the past, the utility, they owned and operated everything. And they worked with their state regulator, for example, to meet the needs of their consumers, of their client, of their customers, right? And now, uh, now that we're opening the marketplace to third-party DER owners, as well, we're opening the marketplace to aggregators uh, who can, they can go get a hundred customers and say, let's all sign up for energy efficiency together. And they manage that energy efficiency program. So it does create a more, a more complex control system as these additional business partners come in, in and, uh, and participate in the marketplace. And so, so the marketplace will be more, much more sophisticated than it has been in the past. Uh, there will be more room for error, but there is also more room for opportunity. And so I look at it as a positive. Um, um, and um, we're looking forward to more people participating in the market, uh, letting that entrepreneurship, letting that um, innovation take over and help us solve some of the technical problems. In terms of DER installation, do you think most of it would be underground or would it be in the traditional above ground to, you know, pole to pole? Or are they actually looking at the future and saying, wait a minute, let's take lessons learned from the past. And I know that we have a big push for undergrounding as well, but these installations which we're talking about, are we talking about uh, just putting up and connecting to the existing wiring or, you know, the existing uh, three phase and so on and so forth? Or are we actually talking about an innovation and also a uh, renewal per se of taking that new source of energy and actually doing it right and tying it in and actually burying it versus uh, just tying it into the existing above ground pole lines. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Ophir. And um, undergrounding is certainly something that the perception of undergrounding has definitely changed. Um, in the past, over uh, overhead was just much less expensive um, but we didn't see all the other benefits, uh, that, that we now recognize undergrounding has, you know, I mean, honestly, so, um, and, and it, every, to my previous point on regulation, uh, I think everyone's looking at it slightly differently, 
but I'm a big advocate for underground at Burns and McDonald. We think, um, uh, undergrounding is the future and, uh, of the utility space. Uh, and so, uh, we have a very robust business, uh, helping our clients make those types of decisions you just talked about. Uh, if you're going to have battery storage and that's designed to meet the energy needs of clients during a, during a hurricane or doing a severe ice storm or doing a fire, well, you can't ne necessarily rely on traditional overhead line construction uh, to, to support getting that energy distributed where it needs to be. So you really do need to look at undergrounding in, in, that, in that case specifically as, as probably part of the resiliency package that you put together. So, yeah. Part and parcel, uh, understanding how important uh, resiliency is and really understanding where things are. How do you guys actually account for what's already in the ground? Because there's so much in there. What do you do? What steps do you do to, to, to mitigate the risk of how you design and how you build and how you build efficiently? Because as we know, there is a lot, to, a lot of infrastructure in the ground already. What, what type of steps are you taking, Gary, or, or your company is taking to actually uh, account for this? Yeah, this is, this is an important topic because um, undergrounding has a lot more, not a lot more, but it has it's some, some significant, if you don't know where, you, where the asset is and you start digging to do new stuff, you know, you can run into problems very quick. And unfortunately, you know, that it's from my perspective, having a managed construction crews as well as, as engineers, um, it can be dangerous if you don't know where the existing facilities are. And, but, but with that being said, the, the modern tools that we have today are, are critical parts of the process now. For example, <clears throat> the GIS system, most everybody in my industry understands that you need to GIS locate, you know, all of your assets, whether they're overhead or underground. And when you do it underground, you know, you need to be very precise, not only about the land latitude longitude of an asset, but also the depth that it is under the ground. And then when people are building uh, and they call in for a locate, uh, a locate is when someone new comes in and they want to do some new infrastructure they say, hey, I want to dig over here. You know, I need to dig a trench for a new sewer line. Uh, the utility, our utility clients will go out and help them and they'll mark the existing underground electrical infrastructure and water infrastructure and say, well, you can't dig here. And, and the way we used to do it, honestly, is we'd all meet out there, you know, and, and everybody would have their maps, you know, and it would be a little frightening because some of the maps would be 10 or 20 years old and maybe the guy would, was only had been with the company a couple of years. So he didn't have all the tribal knowledge, you know, well, yeah. no. Now, sometimes it worked out because you'd get the guy. Well, I, I actually was here when they built that 30 years ago and it's right here. And, uh, but you know, as we get, as we get baby boomers retiring, as we get a turnover, you know, we need these tools for this to be successful and not just from an efficiency and a resiliency perspective, but from a safety perspective as well. So what I understand from you is you're saying that uh, a lot of the knowledge is getting lost right now because of the digitization and because of our modern world that, you know, they're, they're, they're getting not pushed out, but they're retiring right now. And with that, a lot of knowledge is being lost and it's not being captured in the digital form. Now, when you, you actually said something which really interested me, 
you said you were live based on G, GIS. And the, and the funny thing with that is, you know, it, it can make a great picture. You know, digitalization and, and, and visualization is great. But the question is, how accurate is it? What is its validity? What is its pedigree? And these are the things I always get into because I come from the underground uh, the underground sector. And it's really, you know, who actually drew this and how did they get that information? How did they actually convey it? You know, was it, it looks great on, on the database, but is it actually true? Above ground, you can verify with your eyes. Below ground, that's a whole other ball of wax. And just, uh, you know, just to, to convey right through and through that there's been an industry which has been dedicated to that, and that's the SUE industry, Subsurface Utility Engineering Industry, or ASC, the American Society of Civil Engineers, along with its newly created uh, institute, Utility Engineering Survey Institute, which, by the way, this is its lovely pin. <laughs> It, you know, has really uh, has really focused on creating standards uh, for the uh, interaction of existing and new infrastructure and now as-built infrastructure. So really, when we're talking about underground, we're talking about the interaction of the infrastructure. Uh, there's an ASC, there's the ASC 38 standard, which is the standard of investigating or depiction of existing infrastructure. And there's soon to be an ASC 75, which is going to be the as-built standard or the as conveyed constructed standard or doc documentation uh, dedicated documentation and conveyance of existing information and sharing that information so it's really interesting uh, well, you know what you said right now that uh, with the locate process because the locate in truth is only for that construction period uh, you know mm -hmm. when you call in for a locate it's only right before you're about to dig and looking back at the uh, Sioux industry and that's a subsurface of the engineering industry how it's evolved and the, the need for information has really gone forward. That is a, a key point, which I see all of us in the industry, uh, you from the above ground side and the underground side and the, especially the renewable side, where we have an opportunity to really work together to get things up front and right, and then really follow the standards. And talking about standards, Gary, what uh, have you seen your industry, uh, all the different, uh, you know, ASTM standards and so on and so forth. Have you seen any, uh, have they been keeping up with the new innovations of DER? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, and I do agree with you that I'm, I'm optimistic about the underground, just to finish that topic, the underground locate, I'm very optimistic about the future there. Some of the standards that are coming out um, and some of the best practices that I see, for example, when you do put something underground, and you do take the time to make sure you locate it accurately on your on your uh, digital tools. You can also do things like put an RFID tag on it, right? An RFID tag is a tag that helps you find it later, right? And I also see standards like, well, if, if we don't have the benefit of knowing exactly where it is, we caution the construction company, okay, we're gonna mark it right here, but we recommend you hand dig you know, two feet on each side of it, you know, because it, it's not going to, we don't know exactly where it is. And so hand digging might prevent you from, you know, using a backhoe or some other big tool and causing some type of catastrophic failure. Um, so uh, with respect to new, new things that uh, some of the industry bodies are doing, I chair the IEEE uh, distribution resiliency working group. Um, that resiliency working group is coming out of uh, a lot of utilities that are 
saying that we want to measure, we want to actually measure our resiliency of our system. And so we're looking at metrics that would work very similar in the in the United States to IEEE 1366, which is the reliability yeah. metrics. So SADI, SAFI, MAFI, and 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 a whole and, bunch of other acronyms, yeah. <laughs> and not to get an acronym, not to get an acronym yeah, soup, but yeah. but on the reliability side, um, we want to know how many outages do customers have, suffer? You know, how long are those average durations of those outages? And we measure our our system performance based upon those metrics. We're looking at coming up with uh, similar metrics for resiliency. You know, when the hurricane came, uh, you know, how well did the system withstand the hurricane? You know, what was your operational awareness and what did you do to prepare? And then how quickly could you recover afterwards? And so those types of metrics and a lot uh, on the regulatory side, a lot of states are really interested in measuring utilities against this uh, a perform with a performance based rate making schedule where, hey, you, you know, you're a monopoly, you don't have to compete with people. Um, but uh, in order to make your profits that uh, then you have to, you know, have good performance, right? And that performance is based on your reliability and your resiliency, and how well you do. And uh, the way we I like to say it, everybody wants the Amazon experience these days for, for everything, right? When they when they drive through for food, when they talk to their utility company, they all just want this easy, no hassle, quick. Here's the cost, you know, get it at your doorstep, you know, fairly quickly, right? So so a lot of uh, customer expectations and customer service are going up, and um, and so we we need to figure out how as an industry can we meet those expectations, those customer expectations. Um, so, so on the, on the standard side, we're looking at that. We're also looking at standards, uh, when it comes to this, some of this DER, um, a lot of states have said, Hey, you know, um, the DER needs to be as reliable as a, as a basic power plant used to be. And how do we do that? And so we need new tools on the system, like voltage regulators, inverters, saw so other solid state devices, uh, with, with smart algorithms so we can help manage that der and make sure it's going to be there you know when we need it so which uh very which, interesting. which states uh gary are you seeing taking action uh, regarding resilience of the of the grid so for example uh you're probably all familiar with the wildfires out west obviously states like california um Colorado, Wyoming, Washington, Oregon, they're all very interested in understanding the resiliency, the, the benefits that they would get, you know, from mate from fire hardening, right? Uh, in in the South and in on the East Coast of the United States, um, you see a lot of um, you see a lot of storm hardening. Uh, a, a lot of resiliency efforts these days are gonna be couched as what we call storm hardening, right? Riding through the storm. So for example, you know, uh, utilities in the South, they used to do wind loading of their poles to 60, 65 miles an hour. Now they're using wind loading calculations of 165 miles per hour, right? Yeah. And so all of a sudden a wood pole is not, not gonna work enough. out for you as an engineer. Yeah. You need a concrete pole, you need a steel pole, right? 
you need much more robust hardware. And so the analysis tools enable us as engineers to help our clients uh, decide which, which parts of resiliency uh, that will benefit in, on the design side. And so to answer your question, David, I think all states are interested in resiliency. Uh, with, te- with what's happened in Texas the last couple of years, yeah. a couple of dev- devastating hurricanes in, the, in, you know, in Southeast Texas, and then uh, the freezing in Texas, which resulted in a gas outage. Uh, certainly their regulators and their, and their consumers are demanding a more resilient, more robust uh, you know, uh, I'm thinking about what about the uh, death, sorry, uh, what about the adoption technology? Like, how do you actually innovate and uh, put, and actually uh, encourage the adoption of new technology within the within those systems? It's it's really, uh, you know, it's it, it goes part and parcel that innovation needs a, a push and that push is normally technology. So what how are they actually taking that and adopting the new technologies? For example, on our side, uh, the uh, the underground infrastructure side, I see them actually trying to look at more information up front during their planning phases so they understand what's going on and, and adopting a lot of different technologies within it. And what what do you say is the uh, is the, the DER or in general on the electrical distribution transmission side of their adoption of new technology? Well, I, I think that's a great question because honestly in the past there was never uh utilities don't get reimbursement for research and development money right they don't have r d funds they're not like the national labs or the universities that use department of energy money or other money or or private capital to invest and so um in the last decade we've seen more and more states adopt um some small amount of money um, and just a handful of million, like in California, I think it's $10 million over two years. And what they allow the utilities to do is to adopt some of this emerging technology in the form of pilot projects. And those pilot projects, uh, they'll let them try several samples of it. And, it. and if they can make a business case that, well, this technology benefits customers in general, then they're allowed to you know, get seek recovery for larger investments. So, so I'm, I'm excited that most states now have a small uh, recovery mechanism for technology adoption. Um, interestingly, in Hawaii, they're, they want to get to 100% renewable by 2035. Wow. They're looking at how to do that. Um, when they required the Honolulu Electric and the other utilities to submit a, a strategy to get there. They said, well, what we don't want to do is we don't want to pick technology now and crowd out future technological benefits. So instead of giving us a, we, we do want to see your plan to get there eventually, but we really want to do it in three to five year planning segments. That way, we're not putting all our eggs in one basket on one technology. And if there are benefits in technology, we'll be able to take advantage of them in the next three or five year period and in the next three or five year period. So with the adoption of some research and development type pilot programs and with this regulatory strategy of let's let's do it in shorter incremental planning sessions, I think, I think that helps pace the technology adoption, uh, Ophir, at a good rate. Now, technology moves very fast, right? And 
and regulation intentionally does not move very fast, right? And so you you will have this this yin and yang, right, conflict between technology adoption and regulatory guidance because that's they're just very different processes. And honestly, we want technology to move fast, and we're excited that it moves fast, but we also want regulation to move fairly methodically, deliberately, slowly, so we don't get in regulatory situations where, you know, like when we deregulated the energy markets before, we had a, this Enron situation, right, where electric companies couldn't even buy power, they couldn't afford to buy power uh, in California, and the state had to step in and, and, and all those sorts of things. So I applaud the fact that the regulators are being methodical, but yet they're providing these small opportunities for technology adoption. And in the standards community, as you know, Ophir, right? Um, you, you, you don't want to push out a standard overnight. You want to get consensus in the professional community. I chair, I chair several committees. Uh, I chair the IEEE Resiliency Committee. We don't want to come out with a metric with just a handful of people um, who are screaming the loudest, you know, saying this is what we need to do. We want to build consensus across the technical community, across the business community, and make sure whatever standard guidance we provide is widely accepted and, and has been thoroughly vetted uh, by the industry. So. One of the analogies I've always seen, I've, I've always said the standards versus innovation, the innovation is that little dinghy, you know, a little dinghy boat which can turn on a dime and really maneuver. Uh, and and standards are always like a, a cruise ship where it's, it, you know, it's going to get to its direction. It's going to go to where it's going, but it takes a long time for it to turn. It takes a long time for it to stop. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing how things are so parallel in the underground and in the above ground. And just in, in general, uh, innovation is always going to be pushing the regulation and regulation is always going to be that steady as she goes course. So, sorry, that, we, my little observation on that. Regarding uh, regulation, and you know what, not, not only regulation, but we're going to see uh, with the emergence of, uh, of DER, we're going to see lots of new utility owners uh, that will probably uh, go into undergrounding. So we're going to see lots of new utilities uh, put in the ground. And I'm kind of wondering how are all these new actors going to handle this uh, um, uh, this issue because there's going to be a lot of um, utility owners crossing each other. So how how do you think that's uh, that's going to happen? How do you think that's going to work with each other? Yeah, it's it's a constant um, it's a constant challenge um, in older communities, uh, and, and you know we have some examples right in Europe, right? I mean they're on you know, version 25 of infrastructure, right? I mean, they've been building over building over building over building. In the United States, we're, we're actually blessed that, you know, we only have a few communities, Philadelphia, New York City, um, some of the older East Coast cities where, you know, we're on uh, maybe uh, the third or fourth infrastructure, uh, you know, renewal cycle, right? Although we do still, although our engineers do still find um, you know, cable, underground cables and vaults in, in New York City that are stamped with, you know, the Edison Electric Company. Wow. Right. That, things. And um, yeah, yeah. So um, and so it is a, it is a challenge, David, especially in congested, you know, uh, densely populated areas. You know, it's, it's very much a challenge. And, and 
we have engineers that that they they specialize and their expertise is there. We also have a lot of rural communities where, you know, you don't want to necessarily dig up miles and miles and miles uh, for for uh, because of the cost. But there may be some benefit, um, you know, out on the West Coast uh, as a fire mitigation strategy. You know, Pacific Gas and Electric has announced that they're going to be undergrounding ten thousand miles of their lines, wow, wow. and they're looking in at and they're looking into those exact questions, David, um, about how do we interface with existing infrastructure? What are the benefits of the new infrastructure? So, so like I said earlier, we we agree that undergrounding is the future. Um, it won't be for everything, but it, there's just so many resiliency benefits. We call them stacked benefits, right? Mm. So it used to be, well, can you put it underground because it's really ugly and I don't want to see it, you know? So there was this aesthetic value of, you know, maybe on Main Street at Christmas, you know, yeah. well, let's let's underground Main Street, you know, because then at Christmas, you're not seeing these ugly poles and wires and, and stuff like that. That that was, that's old school. Now we see tremendous benefit from undergrounding. And so accepting those challenges of, of sharing the space underground, right? Um, we're going to be uh, accepting those challenges. And, and I think I think everybody takes a very practical understanding that uh, there's increased benefits. So the cost, whatever the incremental cost increase is, uh, we can we can much more easily see the incremental benefit increase as well. And so, uh, yeah, I know this is a, a very uh, this is a question which is uh, it's really spiked. But a lot of times, a lot of companies don't want to put a lot of money into engineering. They'd rather put into construction and, and deal with all the issues. And, and when, when we're looking at that as well, it, it's a very, uh, a very siloed approach. Do you see DER actually uh, getting rid of those silos and really, you know, dispersing the silos and all the different items or all the different, uh, all the different disciplines coming to work together, the engineering along with the distribution guys, along with the uh, planners, like, do you see it actually causing people to, to communicate and work a lot more closely together. It really does. We have some wonderful construction partners um, that we work with. Uh, about half of our revenue is from design build. And so we feel very comfortable that since we designed the, the asset, we feel very comfortable that we can go build that asset um, to, to the specifications that we put into that design. Not that a typical construction company can't, but as you say, Ophir, you you know, handoffs, when you hand off the design and the procurement and the construction to all different parties, well, every handoff is an opportunity for miscommunication. It's an opportunity for delays. It's an opportunity for extra cost, right? And so we're big advocates of um, uh, letting our clients know that uh, we we offer not only the design but the design procure and construct yeah. services yeah. and uh, we're we're getting a lot of clients to take us up on that they see the value in having a strategic partner like a burns and mcdonald right. who is capable of not only doing the design to meet their specifications but it's also going to be their trusted partner you know we're going to we're going to be there for them time and again. We're going to stand behind our design work. We're going to stand behind our construction work, and um, and they feel uh, they feel comfortable that.
they can train uh, whatever they paid it from a pricing perspective to transfer the risk of that project is is money well spent and, and there's value so, at it. So. It's really it's really amazing. I, I I see that we're coming into an age of quality versus uh, quantity. And when I say that, uh, getting removing a lot of the, uh, the you know the low bid situation, really going for quality based selection, and that also comes to the Jones Act, I believe, in Congress, which uh, passed the, the QBS Act, quality based selection for ACEC. So really really amazing. And again, one of the biggest things I've always seen and one of the things I've been advocating for years is understanding and planning ahead what you're going to be dealing with and understanding your existing conditions. Uh, I've been in the sewer, or I was in the sewer industry for the last 20 years, you know, the substance of the engineering industry. And really, you know, it's always been my, uh, it's always been my, my number one thing, plan ahead, understand what you're going to deal with. Intelligence is that, is that biggest part. And, you know, there's a lot of new technologies which will provide you that information up front even before the investigations. So really, I see all the industries, the above ground, the below ground, the, uh, the electrical, the telecom, the gas, all of them working together. And I really hope that the model which you were talking about, the, uh, the EPC, the engineer, engineer Procure Construct, where you actually have a, a partner in your design build and you have a partner into your implementation of the project is that model of the future. Uh, you know, it's really, we've, we've covered a lot here through and through, and I believe that is that one key takeaway, making sure that your partner is right for you and that you actually have a, a proper plan and they have the experience to take the information they have, take the, do the intelligence, you know, do the research of how it's going to work, what's going to happen, having those trusted partners together to help you facilitate your design, your build and you know, your, your actual implementation, uh, for me, that, that says it all, you know, cooperation, understanding, and, uh, going forward with, uh, innovation in the future. And I, I think to underscore that our, our engineers, our professional engineers are not only excellent designers, but we train them also as project managers because managing a project through, through planning through design, through procurement. And as you know, you know, we're right now in the United States and I believe worldwide, we're seeing that the supply chain is really struggling from a lack of resiliency um, where we're, we're it's, it's from getting refrigerators and lawnmowers to getting cable and, and um, solar panels. Um, you know, the, the pandemic has really put a, a spotlight on how not resilient uh, some of our processes were including supply chain and so our training our our engineers as project managers they understand those types of issues they can they're, they're good at reporting out cost tracking cost um and, and then you know at the end of the day helping our construction guys understand the design properly and then building it to those specifications so that the client gets exactly what they paid for at the end of the day so yeah. amazing yeah sorry david i cut you off i i, I know i'm I, no, no, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a zealot just, when it comes I'm to, to, to information and I'm learning as much as i can that's uh, the mo that's what that's uh, why we're here uh, yeah. Yeah. um yeah. Gary, before before right. we uh before you wrap up any um last last uh, tips or recommendations for uh upcoming engineers and project managers in the space things that 
things that they should uh, be aware of, look out for, uh, or look out from? I think um, there's a couple things that I would tell young engineers, new, new, new employees. And one is learn as much as you can from the experienced folks before they decide to retire. Uh, they're, as we, as Ophir said, we're, we're trying to take their knowledge and put it in as many databases as we can <laughs> before they leave. Um, but at some point they'll be gone and they're a valuable resource for most companies, their employees are their most important resource. Yeah. You know? And so I would say, get a mentor, uh, a couple of people that you can really relate to and respond to, uh, as well. Not only will you gain their knowledge, but you'll also gain the benefit of them having business savvy and, and, and some of the other experiences. Um, I would say, um, when you're participating on teams, participate on the most possible diverse teams you can find you, you want as many different perspectives as you can get, um, to make sure that all of the stuff that could go wrong and all the stuff that could go right is out there on the table. And then as, as a team decide what path do we want to take on this project? And you're just going to get great results. If you open yourself up to new ideas, new approaches, uh, because some folks are interested in some of the technology. So, so they'll bring that, that technology perspective. Some of the folks have different backgrounds. They're going to bring that perspective. And at the end of the day, you're really going to get all these amazing ideas that you can provide on your project and your clients just going to be very satisfied with the results. And we kind of take pride in making sure that we, that we have diverse teams and that we, um, and that we maybe understand the, uh, you know, the value add proposition, uh, least cost. That's one thing I, I agree. Oh, fear there's least yeah. cost, but then there's least cost plus all the value added, um, to make sure that you're, that your money's well spent. Um, so that would, that would be my advice for, for someone just entering the field or someone uh, transitioning to our, to our industry. Yeah. Uh, Gary, you said it all. I, 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 I reiterate, you know, it's really, uh, it's really an amazing thing to talk to a professional who conveys the entire envelope of, uh, of due diligence and, uh, and duty of care. So I appreciate what you just said. And I really appreciate uh, the conversation that we had, David, yeah. any, uh, any last no, words before nothing. we uh, was a, wrap up for today? Great conversation, uh, lots of, lots of great insights and, uh, we'll make sure to tell the world about them. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Thank you Gary. so much, Gary. Good, good luck to you. Yeah. Good luck to you guys on your, your webinar program. I'm looking forward to uh, learning from other folks that you have on as guests as well. Sure. So, Gary, any, any, any recommendations for next guest? Oh boy. Well, um, <laughs> we want Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, Mary has a, you know, Mary has a great list of folks that she knows. Uh, uh, it might be interesting for you to get someone on that's maybe in a senior utility manager mm -hmm. who is really looking at it from the business side. Yeah. Um, and, and they can answer some of these same questions and they'll have their perspective. Mary, maybe we'll have oh, a, another conversation afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I know, a, I know a few people that might be interested. Okay. So, so we'll just go. All right. <laughs> 
Anyway. Perfect. <laughs>